Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord? which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. The New Testament reading is from John chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, or verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am, pray- I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified 
in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. And one thing that I have been struck with is living in the culture that we live in, this, this culture that has Christian uh, origins, Christian heritage, Christian ideas that are sort of embedded all throughout. One thing that has happened is a lot of Christian words and ideas we still use, uh, but they get twisted or turned upside down or come to mean totally different things. I mean, I guess that happens with language over the years, but some of the the Christian words and ideas are especially uh, misunderstood, if you will. The first one that that I thought of was martyr. Martyr, of course, comes from the Greek word for witness. And so it came in in church history to mean this like beautiful, ultimate way to witness or testify to the Lord with even your own life. Now, what does it mean? If you call someone a martyr, it's like derogatory, as if they're bringing all of this attention to themselves and showing, making sure everyone knows how much they are suffering, something like that. It means something selfish or, you know, vain even. There are probably lots of other examples. Righteous means all sorts of things, but it has nothing to do with being right with God. Well, for this passage, I'm thinking of especially the word and idea, holy. How does holy get used in our culture, if we're honest? It's almost ridiculous. Oh, you're so holy. What does that mean? It means you think you're better than me, you are being silly, like you actually can be godlike, that's ridiculous. It almost always means something self-righteous, condemning, certainly not something that we would want to pursue, right? How many people use it positively, like, yeah, I really want to be holy. It's kind of a joke, I think, in our culture. Well, what would it mean to recover what it means to be holy? To recover this biblical idea of holiness and to see it even as beautiful and good and something worthy to pursue. Something to even believe that we are made for, that we ought to desire instead of being just something that sounds so incredibly boring or ridiculous or as some kind of killjoy. There's a lot in this passage about being 
holy, but I think we need to really try to understand what Jesus means by it and what he does not. So let's pray and we'll jump into the passage. Lord, we do praise you that you are holy and yet we need your spirit to unlock what that means, to help us to relearn what it means, learn for the first time, clarify, Lord, clarify what the stereotypes and the misunderstandings may be, that we may truly hear from you and you alone. We ask that your word would speak, that you would comfort us, that you would convict us, and that you would be among us to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. So we are in the middle of chapter 17, and we're taking it slowly because it is a precious, precious section of Scripture. This is a prayer of Jesus that we get to overhear. And if you're ever looking for a passage that you you just need to reset or you need to hear from the Lord or just to meditate on some passage that will be restorative to your soul, I would encourage you to go here to John 17. He is praying at the end of his life, right before the arrest, which comes in the next chapter that will lead to the cross. And I want us to, maybe, maybe those among us, I know all, not all of us are Christian, but I want us to try to imagine what would it be like if he were talking about us. Try to imagine yourself at least as one that he is praying for. Because we're going to see that he gets to our identity, our purpose, and then even our habits and lifestyle. There's, there's a way in which all of those things should fit together. So let's first look at our identity. Who are we according to this passage? Well, first we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. Some of you may know Heidelberg chapter 1, this beautiful catechism, this beautiful teaching from the 1500s. The very first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? And it starts with what? That I belong with body and soul. I am not my own. I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's awfully countercultural, I think. We take for granted in most of our culture that we certainly belong to ourselves. We may also belong to other things, political parties, whatever we choose, but we certainly first belong to ourselves and can define who we are, and that fundamentally is just not true. It's not true. Maybe on Mother's Day, happy Mother's Day, you may be reminded that you certainly do not get to pick your mother. Maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but you don't get to pick your mother. And you don't get to create yourself. You don't get to put yourself in the family that you want. There is some sort of givenness to who we are. Our identity. We do not get to make that up. There's something inherent in what it means to be human that we don't start from scratch. 
We do not start from clean slates. It's simply a myth that we have come to believe in this strange Western culture. But instead, we belong to God. As Jesus puts it several times in the passage, he says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. If you notice, apparently part of prayer means just telling God what he already knows. That's what Jesus is doing for a lot of this. And that's part of prayer for us, too, just like we tell those we love. Hopefully we tell them often we love them. We should do that in prayer. But we get a glimpse of this sort of inner Trinitarian, what some theologians have called a covenant of redemption, the sense that the Father has given people to the Son. And the Son has done something for them and now is giving them back to the Father. We are meant to be in God. We thought about that last week as well, how we are made to be brought near. Well, here we are made to be belong to God, to be kept or protected, guarded. It's a, that protected word is a military term. We are guarded by Jesus. We are kept. And this is something very, very uh, similar to the Old Testament. Over and over, God has to remind them, remind Israel who you are. You heard read that beautiful passage. He has placed his love, set his heart in love on Israel. He has simply chosen them. And right before that, he says, but don't think it's because you're special. It's not because you're more righteous. He says specifically that. And he says specifically, it's not because you're more in number, Israel, that I've chosen you. It's simply because I have chosen you. That this is who you are. So we are kept in a way that keeps us humble. It defines us, but it defines us that's based on what God has done, not ourselves. What would it mean to believe that we truly do belong to God? That we have these promises that Jesus is praying for. Not, he doesn't just pray for anyone. He doesn't just pray, in this case, for the world, even though he sends us into the world. He's praying for those who have this promise. This is who you are. You are kept and guarded by the Lord. You, every one of you, whether you know it or not, have the right and ability to become a child of God, as he puts it in chapter 1. That we can have his joy fulfilled in us and with us. What does that mean? Well, part of what that means is we don't belong to ourselves and, hallelujah, we don't belong to the world. This should be reasons for thanksgiving and celebration. You don't belong to whatever tribe you think is most important in your life. They don't own you. Who else do you need to realize don't own you? Maybe your boss, your company, we do not belong to the world. How freeing is that? 
We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all that we have to believe is what he says, not what the world says about you. There are a lot of things that maybe the world says about you that are hard to not believe. But I'm telling you, you do not have to believe that. Believe what the word of the Lord says about you. Let that be your foundation because that's who you are. We are freed from the burden of having to define ourselves. Do you realize what a burden it is if you were to think consistently about that? To have to define who you are? Surely that would lead to nihilism or crazy, crazy hubris. We don't have to do that. We are not of the world. What does it mean to be of the world? What does it mean to belong to the world? How do we become aware of that? Or what would it look like? Well, Jesus tells us it would mean you're not hated. It would mean you sort of fit. You fit all too well in the world. It's too easy to get along with what prevails in our culture. Is that the case for you? Maybe you are too much of the world. Do you fit more with non-Christians who share some political belief, who share a sports team, who share whatever? Do you get more along with them than with Christians who don't share these other secondary things? That maybe is a very important question for you to ask. Do you, do you have more affinity with folks who are, or more passion even, with folks in your political party than with those who are in the church? I know that peer pressure can be very intense, especially for teens, middle school, high school, I remember what it's like. And if you are that age now, I would encourage you, if you, wanna, if you don't believe me that the teen peer pressure will stop, it's not the end of the world to not fit. But if you don't believe me, just look at a picture of your parent when they were a teenager. And you will realize that fashion, thankfully, has changed. They thought that that was cool. And they did it because everyone around them told them it was cool. And hopefully they have learned that it is not. I thought baggy cargo shorts with holes from Abercrombie were really cool, even though they were $100. <laughs> it's sad when you see those who really, really cared about being cool, they get stuck in it, right? And then they're 25 and 35, and like they're still playing that same game. That is tragic. Is that what we need to ask for ourselves? Are we too much? Are we fitting too much in the world? Is there not enough tension or conflict? Is it even hard for us to define how we are different from the world? That itself is a big clue that we do not question the assumptions we receive from our culture enough. I would encourage you to question 
question your doubt, question what you receive from the culture, what do you see everyone doing, question that. Because it may not be what you ought to pursue. So we see that our identity, who we are, is that we belong to God. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Second point is not just who we are, but also what are we for? Why do we belong to God? Is there a purpose to it? Is there a direction? Well, yes, it means we are to be holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Let's try to think about that, understand it, not what, uh, what we've come to mean by it, this ridiculous, self-righteous whatever. What does it mean when God talks about being holy? He says it in many places. One example, Leviticus 11, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. When Moses sees the burning bush, God tells him, What? Take off your sandals because you are on holy ground. Holy simply means set apart, separate. Distinct, different. Israel's mission was to be a community of God set apart from the world. For them, it was set apart spiritually and also physically in this land called Israel. Geographically, right? Militarily, politically, it was all those things for Israel. Not the case for us in the church until the new heavens and new earth, where it will again fill the world. But we are still called to be holy. Just as God is holy and not of this world, we are called to be holy. In our passage, you see it several times. Let me, let me try to clarify something. So you have this amazing address in, in the middle of verse 11. He says, Holy Father. I don't think he ever addresses God anywhere else except that holy father this is a precious prayer that we have but then later where he says verse 17 sanctify them in the truth your word is truth and then 19 for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth unfortunately this translation confuses us it's the same word every time so holy father sanctified and consecrate. Same word. It just it would sound strange to say, set apart, Father. May you set me apart because I'm going to set them apart. Doesn't sound as great. But that's what he's talking about. That they may be set apart or holy. That they may belong to you as I belong to you. And yet, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There is a clear direction or purpose here to being holy. Do you have that sense of purpose in your life? I know that's what really captivated me right when I was just converting in college. I had finally found a purpose for my life. Something to do and something to direct it all 
towards, which is to worship and love God in all that we do. Do you have that sense? Does it loom in all that you do, this purpose? Or do you just sort of go with the flow wherever the culture may take you? I'm reminded of, there's so many examples in movies, Marvel, superheroes, Star Wars, when Luke finally finds out who his father is, or the superheroes who are confronted with their purpose. They finally learn this is their destiny, and they have to make a choice. Will I live up to it? That's something of the purpose that we have of being sent, like Jesus, into the world. And we're going to talk more next week about what it means to be sent in mission into the world as Jesus. But I want to focus today on what does it mean to be into the world? Because I think we have two main ideas here that Jesus wants us to hold on to together. We are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart and distinct, preserved and kept by the Lord. And yet set into the world. So I want us to think of both of those, maybe vertical and horizontal as a way. Hey, that's a cross. Vertical, horizontal into the world, vertical, holy unto the Lord. We need to hold on to both. Because if you have one without the other, you have a gross distortion that is good for nothing. Right? Let's think about how we may have those gross distortions first. What if we were to pursue holiness, but not in the world? What would that look like? Well, it would probably look selfish, self-righteous, smug, condescending, right? You, you, you have maybe a good motivation to worship the Lord, but you are, it's the holy huddle. It's the monastic, I want to withdraw so that I may be holy which is simply what Jesus does not want you to do. And thank God Jesus didn't do that, right? What would that mean? He stays in heaven. He doesn't come. Doesn't become human. We are all forsaken. I remember a college student uh, early on in his time, and he, was, he had this, like, he had a solid faith, and he was zealous, but he was very self-righteous in the way that he condemned others who were going out to parties. So he's like, I'm not going to go out. I'm going to stay in. And frankly, I had to convince him, there's sin in your dorm room too when you are by yourself. You haven't escaped. There may be wise reasons to do that, but you still have to deal with your own sin. So is this your problem? Do you lean this way, where there maybe is a sense of being afraid of the world or think you're better than the world, better than the non-Christians you know. I think this is, this is why many of us see holiness as something that's negative. It's like abstinence. It's something you don't do. That's if we're only trying to avoid certain things. And this is why the church, in America at least, is often more known for what we're against than what we are for, right? The world thinks they know what the church is about. It's about saying no to things. 
H.L. Mencken had this famous definition of a Puritan, the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy. Is that the church? What a tragedy. Is that where you lean? Do you contribute to that stereotype? Now we should realize it's become sort of a cheap and easy target, maybe especially for the younger, younger generation to decry those, these types of, of Christians. So let's look at the other extreme. That was, that was holy but not into the world. Let's look at into the world but not holy. What would that look like? This is also good for nothing because you're not helping anyone. You're just like the world. Jesus has become perfectly irrelevant. You don't need Jesus to become like the world. Just roll downhill and it will happen. I think this is where I lean more. My tendency, I think, as a people pleaser, if you're more of a people pleaser, you're going to just sort of not ruffle feathers. You're going to roll downhill. And maybe in the right context, if someone asks me who is Jesus, then I'll say something. But otherwise, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. We have forgotten, if this is us, we've forgotten that we and all those around us, in fact, need the holiness of God. We need to be purified of our sin. But maybe we have become so deeply attracted to the world that we've forgotten the whole point of who we are, which is to belong to God. And maybe this is true for you professionally, but not socially. Sometimes we act differently in different circles. You act more like you're in the world socially because you want to have fun, but otherwise you don't, whatever it is. Think about that for yourself. Do you tend to be holy and not in the world or in the world and not holy? Another way to think of it is, which one do you think is worse? You're probably the other one. Right? So I... Naturally, I would say the one who's holy and not in the world is worse. And that's, then you see why, well, I struggle with being too much in the world. What is that for you? Realize that Jesus is both holy and sent into the world. Holy, holiness is a positive. It's not a negative. It's the presence of something, not the absence. It's the presence of God where you are. That's what we're called to be. The image of God, everyone is made to be an image, to point towards. Here we are showing, we are seeing in Jesus' prayer that we are meant to belong to God, to be sanctified and holy as a fragrant offering sent up to the Lord in the midst of the world in the midst of the world, being like Jesus. So we have this identity and purpose, who we are, why we are that way, to be sent as holy into the world. And those two things should be 
cohesive. They should make sense. They should inform each other. And they should inform this final point, which is the, the methods, the how. If it was first who and why, now it's how. How do we do this? That should be consistent with who we are, right? If you are a fish, we just got a fish. If you are a fish, but you insist on living on land, it will not go well. If you are someone who is made for God, and you insist on living a life that is about and focused on yourself, it will not go well. So he tells us how. How can we make holiness become more and more beautiful in our eyes and our hearts? Well, he talks about being sanctified in truth. Your word is truth. What would it mean to be caught up in the word, to listen and obey the word? Psalm 119, if you're looking for what this looks like, read Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm, but it's not actually that long if you just read it in one sitting. And it shows us this incredible picture of what does it mean to delight in God, to be humble in dependence upon God to delight in his word, to know that he needs his salvation and his power. Save me, turn me from worthless things. We are to be kept in the word, or as Jesus says here, kept in God's name. Kept in God's honor and character and identity. So if we, if we are ignoring the Bible or if we are ignoring the church, it, does, it shouldn't surprise us then that we no longer have a desire to be with God. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you say, I'm only going to come to church when I clean myself up and get good enough for it, you will, if you're honest, never come. It's same for the word being sanctified in the word and in community, and being sanctified by Jesus. And so he ends this passage with, for their sake, I consecrate myself, or I set myself apart, make myself holy, if you will. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What is he talking about? He's talking about, of course, the cross. The hour has come. He starts his prayer off with, Father, the hour finally has come for us to be sanctified. He has to deal with our sin. And he is going to be set apart in a grotesque way because he has to deal with grotesque sin so that we may be set apart and have a hope of dealing with our grotesque sin. You remember Heidelberg 1, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It goes on to say he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for. I don't pray that they come out of the world. I'm not praying for them to leave the world. Don't leave the world. Because that's not God's promise for you. I'm praying that you would be kept from the evil one.
Heidelberg goes on, he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. How could we not want that? Why would we want to belong to the world or even to ourselves? Why would we want to give ourselves, try to give ourselves something better than that? You're going to defeat death on your own? You're going to defeat sin on your own? You can't even do it in yourself. You're going to do it in other people too? Hallelujah, we have been set apart for a specific purpose by Jesus, not our own doing, that we may live wholly unto him. Let's prepare to come to him at the table. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.